0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, November 19th, 2020. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Please go to CommentaryMagazine.com to read the contents. If you uh, subscribe, uh, or you can get a few free reads before we ask you to subscribe, to our December issue, which, as I've mentioned, features a fantastic piece by Noah Rothman uh, analyzing the results of the election, a great review by Abe Greenwald on... The uh, Rodria book, Live Not by Lies, and a terrific piece by Christine Rosen about the uh, effort to rebrand Hispanics as white for the purpose of maintaining the idea that people of color have to be Democrats or radicals. Um, and and uh, a really extraordinary piece by uh, Nick Eberstadt uh, called America After COVID that is effectively a sequel to his piece, Our Miserable 21st Century, which remains the most read commentary article of all time. We'll talk some more about this. With me, as always, Abe Greenwald, whom I just mentioned. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And, of course, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And who else but Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So, guys, um, here in New York, Uh, everything is going to hell Uh, no one's getting sick in the schools but they close the schools we have a three percent rate of uh, infection positivity uh, on the testing um, which is an incredibly low number the testing inside the schools is 0.17 percent according to last report and yet uh, bill de blasio the worst mayor in america the worst mayor in new york city history Uh, most likely, and an absolutely terrible person who smokes pot all day, um, has basically shut the schools with some version of permission from our governor, um, Andrew Cuomo. Abe, uh, you uh, watched Andrew Cuomo uh, give a press conference yesterday afternoon um, in which uh, Jimmy Vilkin, the uh, reporter, uh, New York state reporter for the Wall Street Journal, said uh, parents are, are confused about what's going on in the new york city schools and what did um, what did governor uh, andrew uh, cuomo the saint of covid uh, uh do in response
1: well the first thing he thought necessary to do was to um correct um vilkin's tone uh he said don't start off with
0: that obnoxious tone um because you don't know what you're talking about what was uh, interesting was we were listening and uh he actually didn't have an obnoxious tone he at just all. Said, go, he just said, governor, parents are confused. They're closing the schools. You haven't, it's not clear what the, what the standards are and why they're being closed. Can you explain it? That's, and it pretty much as I just said it. Yeah, that's
1: precisely right. Yeah. But, um, um, you know, uh, Cuomo who, um, you know, whose, whose, whose tone is of course never obnoxious, um, uh, you know, thought it necessary to uh, inst- instill civility into the proceedings. Um, uh, so he he chastised him for for his tone, and then he sort of kind of went into his usual um, uh, sort of somewhat uh, somewhat obfuscating, but generally um self-aggrandizing, you know, claim about how the state can uh, override it. and it, when it comes when it comes to these orange zones that the state has de- designated they can, it can override the city choices, but the city has its own uh, uh standards by which it can close schools. Um it wasn't particularly um clear. Uh so there were follow-up questions in fact.
2: He you're being far too kind. He confused himself. Yeah, he was so he was very frustrated with the notion that anybody would be confused, read the law, he says. And then he's like, Okay, well, I got to explain it. So then he goes, All right, well, I don't actually know what the rate is in Buffalo. But if it's in Buffalo, then it's going to be in this rate. And then this we have a we have a a rate that measures infections in New York City, and they have their own rate. But if you're in a municipality with an orange zone, then you can make your own decisions. But Albany has a veto over those decisions. And why are you confused?
0: <laughs> right. yeah, and right. then he well, said, bit, Yeah. Maybe. And then he referred to microclusters. And then Vilkin or somebody said, Well, okay, so where are the microclusters? And then he said, Well, they're not really a geographical entity. Right. Which, they're of course,
3: microclusters of the
0: mind, John. Like- what is a cluster? <laughs> it's a geographical gathering of, 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 things that are uh, smushed together. That's what a cluster is. In space. Yeah. So, um, but he, he was like, are you, basically, he was like, are you stupid? Have you been paying attention? Have you been paying attention? Don't or, you know that we already did this? We did this. New York had an orange zone. Yeah, I remember when you did it. You did it in certain neighborhoods in Brooklyn and then were accused of potential anti-Semitism and then you stop doing it really fast. You goon, you repulsive goon, you psychopathic repulsive goon. I mean, it really watching, you have to watch this thing, go to YouTube yeah. and Google Cuomo, uh, you know, what, what date was it? November, 18th. Uh, November 18th. Like I, you've never seen anything like this. Like people have been talking about how Trump insults people at press conferences. Uh, like, Trump does it, you know, it's it's horrifying when Trump does it because it's so discomforting. This was literally like, and I'm sorry, because this is going to sound, you know, racist or whatever. It's like was like watching Joe Pesci in Goodfellas. Saying, "Am I a clown to you?" Like you half expected Cuomo to leap across the table and start bashing Vilkin's head on the floor.
3: Well, and we should also remind—I mean, uh, most of our listeners probably don't need reminding of this—but this is coming after his weird victory tour, victory lap tour with his with his uh, memoir and his victory posters, which he's been selling. I mean. The defensiveness I think was interesting because I think a lot. I think he assumed that there wouldn't be this this uh, new spike or that if it w- that it wouldn't be as serious it as it is. So he is on the defensive as he should be as a public policymaker. Um, but his t- his own tone of defensiveness I thought was was remarkable given that just a few weeks ago he was touting how he had been the savior of mankind during COVID. You know, uh, right? You, before,
2: though, sorry. if you if you're socially distant, this is Cuomo. If you're socially distant and you wore a mask and you were smart. None of this would be a problem. It's all self imposed. If you didn't eat the cheesecake, you wouldn't have a weight problem. Again, making a moral issue out of COVID, as though if you catch it, you've messed up. You've done something wrong. This is your fault.
0: You know, uh, right before Vilken asked him his perfectly legitimate question and Cuomo, you know, Cuomo turned into Joe Pesci, um, he was offering this incredibly sodden. Uh, he was delivering this sodden, sentimental speech about Thanksgiving. Oh, yeah. It's like, here's what you should say. You should say, I love you so much that I'm not going to see you. I love you so much that I'm going to let you be alone on Thanksgiving so that you don't get killed, right? I love you so much. You know, it's like, go soak your head in a barrel of brine, You know, we got Gavin Newsom, the governor of the state on the opposite side of the country, closing restaurants down. Kids aren't going to school in the two largest school districts in California. Businesses are crippled. And he and the California Medical Association are having indoor dining at the French Laundry, a restaurant that I have been to in Napa Valley, the most beautiful restaurant I've ever been to. And let me tell you, it's $450 to $500 a plate to eat at the French Laundry, and Gavin Newsom wasn't paying the bill. I can promise you that. And this whole thing where Muriel Bowser, the mayor of D.C., goes to, goes to Wilmington to go to the Biden celebration while anyone who leaves the city, according to her diktat, has to quarantine for 14 days except her. Right? All of this. The stuff that we saw at the White House – that, that For which the Trump people were properly criticized, wandering around without masks, having public indoor, indoor things with that mask, being very um, irresponsible, and then all these people, including Trump, getting COVID, right? Well, this ain't one party. This isn't one party doing this. You think Andrew Cuomo's not going to have Thanksgiving with his family? You're goddamn right. He's going to have Thanksgiving with his family because he loves them so much that they should be alone on Thanksgiving. Um, so
1: regarding that, so uh, then a, a question came later on in the Cuomo press conference um, from someone who pointed out that some sheriffs said that law enforcement officials would not be enforcing um, this executive order on uh, no on Thanksgiving on no get no gatherings. In homes larger than uh, 10 people. And Como was upset, of course, you know, because that then they're not law enforcement officers. Because, you know, he you get said something. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm ahead. sorry
0: to interrupt because no, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm in high dudgeon here. So he kept well, saying to Vilkind read the law, read the law. Governor, none of this is law. These are these are emergency dictates under emergency powers granted to you by the New York State Constitution. They do not have the status of law because no legislature passed them. You did not sign them into law and they are therefore not on the books. It is not a law. These are regulations governing individual private behavior that as Samuel Alito suggested in his speech before the Federalist Society last week might have deep constitutional problems depending on where you are and what the state constitution says so don't you be using the word law you psychopathic goon I say again sorry Abe Okay, I'm gonna calm down. You guys, you guys talk about no, stuff. just it. No, my,
1: my only point here is that he, and it's it's in perfect keeping with your characterization of him. He was upset that cops wouldn't be going door to door breaking up Thanksgiving celebrations that were larger than his executive order um, prescribes.
3: Meanwhile, all across his state for many, many months, there have been people breaking the social distancing rules and all of the other things that have been in effect to prevent the spread of a pandemic. And they've been celebrated as heroes, you know, as social justice warriors. So this is where I think this is why the hypocrisy is something that we shouldn't stop talking about because these are emergency powers in many cases. The hypocrisy is even more egregious because the people have no recourse except to point it out, right? I mean, you have to trust. Emergency powers are extended to our leaders on the basis of our trust that they have everyone's best interest in mind, and we trust them to pursue a policy in extenuating circumstances to help everyone. When they themselves individually you know, disregard those same rules and and apply different rules to themselves. People have a right to be angry. People have a right to say, well, then who, what rules? Um, and I think that's what we're, we definitely see it with Cuomo and with Newsom. But it, at, at, the, at the lower level, you see this too with the school officials, with the teachers unions. I mean, this idea that there is a set of rules for one people based on their ideology and a set of rules for everyone else, it pisses people off.
0: <laughs> this is this is not going away we've been talking now for eight months about the pandemic and we thought no in particular i would say at the very beginning of the pandemic that the public tolerance for lockdown and all of that would be met with active resistance it turns out it was not really met with active resistance it was met with a fraudulent public outcry, I mean, the the outcry was the outcry was not fraudulent, but it was met with the uh, making use of a public outcry about police brutality to allow people to go out and party for three weeks in the streets, who were in fact not the sort of people that we thought were going to be the ones who would revolt against the strictures, right? Okay, so here's what I think this is not going away. Because this is the argument of our time, which is, is the government, are these leaders, including Trump who goes at it in a different way, are they asserting authorities and prerogatives and and, and showing a hunger for control of the behavior of other people and the people that they work for that are stretching the bond's of, of civil society and self-governance? The answer is yes. And I don't know how this will play out electorally over the next four years, but it is going to play out electorally. You know, uh, we see, and it could have weird cross-cultural currents depending on where you are, who's the one who's pushing whatever, who isn't, and it, is, it, is, um, it may sort of transcend the culture war in a weird way, because you can see just as readily how conservatives might be accused of some of this, as well as liberals, depending on what the, what, what the charge is. But this notion that as the government becomes increasingly more intrusive in people's lives as a result of, you know, part as a result of the pandemic and what what powers they may continue to try to hold to themselves when the pandemic ends, where we're not even talking about populism, we're just talking about a kind of general self defense um and I don't know what that's gonna do um but I was uh, noah, you were on Morning Joe this morning, and also on Morning Joe this morning was uh one of the congress women from South Florida who was um who was voted out in November and she said a lot of different things. It was not very impressive. And I, once again, as she complained, I, I can't remember her name. I think it's Muscatel Powell, but I, Muscatel maybe it may Muscatel is like a, is like a cheap wine, right? <laughs> and maybe I've got her name wrong and I apologize, but um, she did one of those, you know, the, Hisp- the Trump people found ways to communicate with Hispanics that we didn't see. And they have found ways to talk to them that we didn't see and all of that. Well, maybe one of the ways that they found to talk to Hispanics is uh, maybe you don't hate this country as much as they're telling you that you should hate this country. Or maybe, you know, maybe this idea that because you're brown and other people are black, your interests are the same as their interests Or or your grievances and upsets are the same as their grievances and upsets.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm inclined towards that view. There's a a pretty compelling analysis that suggests, particularly in South Florida, that when you start talking about socialism, you know, white Northeasterners and people on the coasts think of Denmark. Um, But Venezuelans don't think of Denmark.
0: Cubans don't think of Denmark. Um, They think of
2: Cuba and Venezuela,
0: (laughs) where they get where they get WhatsApp calls from people who are saying things like we don't have flour. Sure.
2: I mean, if you're allowed that or my son is in an undisclosed location, Mm -hmm. um, being presumably tortured. Um, But that's, you know, that's a compelling bit of analysis. But I'm also I'm a little bit more persuaded, not by the notion that Donald Trump and Republicans had a particularly deft outreach strategy, though they may have. For economia, I didn't didn't do anything for me. But maybe it did something for uh, you know, the people in the Rio Grande and, and in South Miami. What I think is more persuasive is not that, Dem- that Donald Trump won these votes, but that Democrats lost them, that Democrats appealed to them in ways that were condescending, that were immature, that were naked turnoffs, um, and did so by appealing to ethnic solidarity, where ethnic solidarity does not exist across the Hispanic spectrum. Um, and that childish view of this demographic was a turnoff.
0: Okay, it's Mukarsil Powell, so I apologize, not Muscatel. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, so yeah, no, but I mean the turnoff is look. One of the ways of looking at this is what do we know about the difference between the Trump voter and the and the Biden voter, or between the sort of Republican voter in general, aside from s- strictly cultural issues, and the and the Biden voter, right? That what we have is college educated people who don't work with their hands versus people who work with their hands. The first person who pointed this out to me was Rich Lowry right after the 2016 election who said, we all have had this experience that people who either work with their hands or work in industries where people work with their hands or something like that seem much more like Trump people than they seem like other people. And the rising hispanic working uh, middle class in the united states is rising through through their labors they're rising the way people have risen in the tw- you know the course of the 20th century they start small businesses they are you know these are small businesses that often involve physical activity physical labors they do things with their hands they 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 achieve things they build businesses that aren't service business that aren't you know like Computer programming and they're not, you know, or they're not, they're something else, right? They are, they involve the use of your body in physical labor. And people like that will be inclined to a greater sense of uh, the, uh, the idea that what you individually can do can transform your circumstances and that you are not being held back by, you know, by invisible forces, and that is that is the ultimate distinction between the Republican and Democratic messages. Let's say, which is that either you work with your mind, in which case you can transcend all kinds of things, or if you are compelled because of circumstances not to work with your mind, you're screwed.
3: Well, but that but there's some, there's another layer to it too, and I'm I'm recalling the the kind of infamous remark that Obama made, I believe it was in his second term, where he said, "You didn't build that." Right. there, There's another message that comes from the left and it's extremely loud on the progressive left. But it, it exists in the moderate Democratic left, too, which is you are you are assumed to have uh, to understand that this was done for you by the state or that you need the state's help to do anything. And I contrast that with one of the things that you see a lot of um, sort of first and second generation immigrants doing creating restaurants. And in Louisville, during the height of the Black Lives Matter controversies over the summer and all of the marches and everything demands were placed on a lot of small business owners to put up a list of things that they vowed to do to support Black Lives Matter. And there were some, um, you know, Hispanic business owners who said, we're not going to do that. And here's why. And they tried tried to explain why that wasn't something they were going to be bullied into doing. And that right there struck me as something that the progressive left should take a really close look at, right? Because here you had a lot of people who, in, including professional elite activists who parachuted into Louisville to, to get on the news camera and, and, you know, raise money for their pet causes. And you had people who live in that community saying, we can't be bullied. We're not going to do that. And they were all minorities, all of them, all the people having debates, all the people protesting. And I think the, the lack of, of attention to that uh, heterogeneity is what really harmed them in this election.
1: So um, because... Uh, Hispanics didn't play the identity politics game according to um, liberal rules. Um, They had to be punished by um, liberals. Um, And what is their punishment? They are now labeled the worst thing you could be.
0: They are white. They're white. Right, that's Christine's (laughs) right. That 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 is Christine's piece, right? I mean, obviously, by the way, as we're saying this, you know the vast majority of hispanics did vote for biden like we we need to we need to we should we need to pull back and not you know act like you know hispanics all fled to you know uh, move to trump um that that's an important you know distinction that needs to be made um so but it's not an especially
2: compelling distinction considering these demographic trends likely cost joe biden florida and made it made texas a lot less competitive than polls suggested it would be
0: right so we got a very different kind of sponsor for today's podcast it's the jordan harbinger show which i've talked to you about talked to you about last week a podcast itself well worth listening to jordan's show which apple named one of its best of 2018 is aimed at making you a better informed more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening There's an episode for everyone, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of people's personalities. You can listen to The Fight to Defend the Free World with H.R. McMaster, The Cyber War in America's Elections with Harry Hursty, Principles of Investing with hedge fund genius Ray Dalio, The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is Jordan's ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. You'll find something you can apply to your own life, whether that's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see your world. So go to jordanharbinger.com slash subscribe or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, so uh, we got some uh, bad media stuff to talk about. Um, This morning, uh, I opened opened the New York Times. I opened the webpage of the New York Times. Excuse me. um, And uh, I see a headline uh, on the webpage of the New York Times that reads the following, quote, Pompeo, meaning, of course, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, handing Israel one more prize calls BDS movement anti-Semitic. Let's, let's, let's go through that again. Pompeo, handing Israel one more prize calls BDS movement anti-Semitic. This is a headline on the New York Times uh, website. That, about an hour later, was changed. Which is interesting to me because I am now imagining what is going on. I think Christine brought this up uh, privately. Uh, In the Slack channel at the New York Times, did the wokester who wrote this headline sneering, dripping with contempt headline. When, of course, there's literally no problem in calling the BDS movement anti-Semitic since it is anti-Semitic. And the headline gets changed. Does that person who wrote the headline on the on the news desk or whatever, does that person now feel unsafe? Was there a triggering because of the editing? Because you know, if I were that person, I would feel unsafe. I the think the edit is a
3: microaggression. Actually, just a I very the active edit, editing.
0: The edit is a is a microaggression, and you know, I I think that uh, Dean Baquet needs to burst into tears and defend himself and defend the paper while bursting into tears. And then maybe rehire James Bennett and then fire him again just to, you know, have a good, you know, uh, sacrifice uh, for, for, for the mob.
1: Well, I think, I think the the person who wrote the uh, initial headline may be okay. Um, May just need a sort of, you know, maybe could take a day off and then be okay because they did preserve the essential sentiment in the subhead that, that, um, went on after the change. Um, it said something like Pompeo uh, on his visit. Pompeo gave Israel two gifts.
2: Yeah, I, I think that that's not really how the tr- the course of events here. The original headline was what it was. There were two or three people who understood the context that they were talking about and said this needs to be changed and was changed. They were overruled. And what will follow is the outpouring of mm-hmm. frustration, frustration and uh, defense of this poor embattled headline writer who was right after all, all along, and that there was this intervention on the part of these old, you know, conventional liberals who have some sort of a, a, an anachronistic affection for Israel who are trampling all over the context that needs to be promoted in this headline. And now they feel unsafe. Now they're starting to feel really uh, besieged by their the, the executives who, who they work under who who don't understand The context of the region as much as the Wolksters do.
0: Hey, you know who else uh, had just a terrible experience at the New York Times yesterday? Nicole Hannah Jones. I mean, it's really terrible. You know, she comes out of nowhere, she wins a Pulitzer Prize. Her 1619 work is being adopted by schools all over the country. And, you know, she hasn't been in the office for months because of the pandemic. She went in yesterday. And there was a bunch of mail on her desk that was really hostile. And you know what was most amazing about it is that the mail was festooned with American flags, festooned with American flags, because, you know, that's really trying to send her a message that she is not welcome in this country with her, um, with her 1619 project theories, uh, Noah, you pointed out why, why was all of her male festooned with American flags?
2: Well, I mean, some of those messages were actually really abhorrent insofar as they were legible. So, I mean, that's not a pleasant experience. It's one we've all had, unfortunately. Yeah, I was just going to, let me
3: just say, if, you, if you're if you a female writer, and sometimes even if you're a male writer, if you haven't been called see you next Tuesday by some angry person who's read your work, you're probably not being strong enough in your journalism. Just, just putting that out there. We've all been sure. there. Sure. <laughs>
2: I mean, but of the American flags she found so threatening, one of them was a stamp.
0: It was a forever stamp. A forever stamp. It's a forever American stamp. It's by. the stamp on a goddamn envelope. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And can so, I just say the notion that Nicole Hannah Jones is threatened? Is threatened when she is stamp. the most lionized journalist in America right now is so nauseating. Like, you know, take the wind. You know, that that she would dare to act like a victimized person after what has happened to her in the last twelve months is just, you know, at what point are the people who work with her and people in this industry who are notoriously jealous and hostile uh, toward anyone who scores, you know, a a, a, a degree of success particularly coming out of nowhere, when are they going to start turning on her? Like, I don't like her because I don't like what she writes and I don't like her ideas. And I think her Twitter feed and her general comportment is extremely obnoxious, but I don't really care about that one way or the other. But at some point, her own people are going to start getting pretty sick of her, like, garbing herself in the mantle of, uh, of, you know, A victimized uh, a a person who's been abused. When you know she has skyrocketed into superstardom,
2: my um, I mean, again, the notes were really kind of horrific. We've we've all been there, but like no one is excusing the the treatment that she endured by the hands of of readers. But anonymous people write garbage to everybody who writes, and if you're not getting that, as Christine has said, you're not a good writer. You're not being provocative enough. Um, My favorite. Yeah, where
0: part. where were the letters? Where where were her letters on the desk? Why didn't she show us the letters on her desk that said things like, "All right, you're sure. a visionary prophet." You know, here's your grant. You're the yeah. You're the <laughs> yeah, your you're genius the, grant. You're, 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 yeah, you're the the you're the greatest person who's ever lived. Please speak at my school. Here's a check for twenty five thousand dollars just because. Like I, that. That's what I'm saying. Like, don't think that all those letters were hostile. There's a very. There are people who think they're very
2: clever who have decided that she and others like her who uh, wrote for the 1619 Project are victims of cancel culture, conservative cancel culture, because they're trying to strip the Pulitzer, the commentary Pulitzer, that this work received. Um, That is not what cancel culture is, uh, and your effort to conflate the two um, suggests you either don't know what it is and shouldn't be discussing the matter further, Or that you just uh, you've you've settled on a really clever line you think is just going to own the cons and you've got us.
0: Okay,
2: here's another
3: case. Oh, sorry. I just want to say one thing to that because I think one of the things that's so infuriating about both her public demeanor and Ibram Kendi's public demeanor is that they're both people who have gotten a lot of attention who refuse to debate anyone who challenges them. They literally will not have a, a public discussion of their own work so they play out their grievances on twitter where they're where they're flooded with people praising them for their bravery but it takes no bravery at all to do what they're doing on twitter but they won't sit down in a public forum and ha- and hash out their ideas because people really thoughtful people on the other side have challenged them to do so and they refuse
0: okay here's another case so um as uh, as You may know, uh, Raphael Warnock, the uh, reverend who is uh, running in the Democrat, one of the two runoffs in Georgia as the Democratic candidate, Uh, the uh, Washington Free Beacon uh, uncovered a a sermon that he gave in which he said, one cannot serve God and the military uh, in the U.S. military uh, at the same time. And uh, and this uh, a pretty startling th- thing to be said in a state like Georgia, uh, in particular, um, was suddenly uh, people rushed to his defense. Jamel Bowie, another New York Times uh, columnist, uh, who said he was just quoting how you cannot serve, you know, two masters, and it's like God and Mammon, you know, because Mammon and military both begin with the letter M. Maybe he just watched ridge.
3: I mean, who knows?
0: (laughs) Yeah. So you know, because this line, you know, you're
2: hostile towards or ignorant of Christianity. Clearly,
3: yeah, right.
0: No, and so then uh, Sam Stein of the Huffington Post, or I'm sorry, Daily Beast. I can't remember which. Anyway, said, and and he's a. I like him. He's a nice guy. Uh, Even more importantly, his mother and my sister Naomi were best friends in high school. So this is I I, I mentioned that only to say that, you know, it, it pains me to bring this up, but I feel like I have to. So he said, how come it's okay to talk about Raphael Warnock's religious opinions, but it's not okay to talk about Amy Coney Barrett's religious opinions? Well, first of all, Nobody said it wasn't okay to talk about Amy Coney Barrett's religious – or even ask Amy Coney Barrett to what extent her religious views might inform her jurisprudence. It is when you then – when she answers the question and says they don't and then you say, I don't believe you because that Catholicism of yours – woo. The issue is not what Amy Coney Barrett said. It's what Diane Feinstein said to Amy Coney Barrett, right? That's it was a that's, political disaster, right. is why. Yes. Right. It's because you and, stepped on a landmine last time. That's right. And number two, Amy Coney Barrett wasn't running for Senate. And people who say things publicly and what they say publicly as an as an as an expression of their views that they might bring to the legislature. I am unaware of any world in which it is not fair game for people's statements from a pulpit to somehow be isolated, particularly if they are political, which they were. Because if you cannot serve God and the military, according to Raphael Warnock, he then has to go and vote on the budgets of the Navy The Army, the Air Force, the Marines, the Coast Guard, the Merchant Marine, the Space Force, our ICBMs, whatever. So apparently his animating philosophy, if you were to take him at his word and take him seriously, if not literally, is wildly pacifistic. Look, this is stuck pig stuff.
2: They're screaming because they know this is a nightmare disaster. There are 13 military bases in Georgia. Every branch is represented. There are tens of thousands of uniformed service personnel, tens of thousands more support personnel, 100,000 relatives of those people. Georgia's a big military state. And to disparage service, as he did, is a killer.
0: Right. So let's move on to some other fun uh, uh, press stuff. Um, this is not really an attack on the New York times uh, as it is so much uh, the characterization of a, of, of a detail in the New York times story. Once again, let's move back to the middle East and where Mike Pompeo apparently is handing gifts out to Israelis uh, to a story in the New York times about the Palestinian, what we call the pay or slay policy. Or pay and slay, which is if you are a terrorist, you kill Jews, and you're arrested uh, and thrown in jail uh, by Israel, you get a pension. Your family gets a pension from the Palestinian Authority. Your family is supported for life by the Palestinian Authority called pay and slay. There's a great piece on this subject in commentary published in 2017 by Douglas Fife and Sandra Gerber. Uh, You can go look it up. Great piece. Lays the whole thing out. So according to this piece, uh, apparently uh, in the run-up to the election, desperate Zoom calls were going out uh, from Washington think tanks, by which I think they mean Brookings and also Brookings. And did I mention Brookings and maybe the Carnegie Endowment, but then also Brookings? that said going to the Palestinian Authority from American figures, meaning shadow cabinet people who might go into the, you know, or shadow foreign policy people might go into the Biden administration, telling the Palestinian Authority that they need to abandon pay and slay. uh, If uh, Biden is to reverse any of the gifts that Trump gave to the Israelis, uh, so, you know, and basically if they don't do it, then how is Biden going to take back the Trump administration's policies on Israel and the Palestinians and stuff? Can we just back off a second? Abe. Abe, uh, what are they supposed to – why on God's green earth <clears throat> would you take back a single iota – of Trump administration policy in Israel, which has paid off a dividend in terms of relations between Israel and its Arab countries in the Gulf that has been a desideratum of American foreign policy for 70 years.
1: See, this is one of the nightmares um, of of, um, the incoming Biden administration, and and it would be the case of any... Um, Democratic um, administration in the White House, which is that this whole industry that, that has uh, sprung up over decades, the, the Middle East peace industry, um, um, will kick back into gear Now. It's like uh, during the Obama years, we heard from all the same people, um, about all the tired, tired arguments, about what Israel needs to do for peace and and so on, um, and these were arguments that were long past their sell by date, that no longer had anything to do with facts on the ground. Um, and uh, it, it has to be said that the Trump administration wonderfully sort of matched its policy to the facts on the ground, and that was and that was a huge um, change. Um, from everything that had preceded it, but now there there is of course, because of this massive industry and this ideology around, not massive, but you know um sort of entrenched industry and uh, the ideology around it, there is going to be this regeneration of these bad ideas, and the press, as always, will um go along with it um, um uh, sort of campaign on behalf of 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 the old stale ideas but Something has changed, um, and I know that I feel differently when I read these things now, and that's because of the Abraham Accords. Um, their, their fundamental uh, premise here in um, asserting that um, Israel is cruel and needs to make all these sacrifices on its part, and uh, if, if they do so, then Palestinian leadership will, will um, you know, take steps on its end and all that. Um, this has been gutted. Because uh, Israel's important Arab allies in the region now no longer care about this in that way. They 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 have they have recognized the nonsense of this position. So uh, in some sense, it all just sort of rolls off my back, and you know, uh, and it and it should uh, others as well. I mean, this is not to say that Israel is not under threat. Um, it is the main threat as it's been for a long time is from Iran. Um, and that, um, uh, that, uh, global semitism is not real. And that, and that, that is mainly, uh, expressed in this sort of, um, acceptable hatred of Israel. That's all true and it's all terrible, but in some major sense, Israel has won, um, and that changes things. So it's like, uh, they can complain and they can whine and they can, uh, condemn all they want, uh, Reality has
2: moved on. And the inducements to cooperation in that article are particularly re- revealing of what you're talking about. Because what did they say? They would undo precisely one thing, which is to reopen the Palestinian mission in Washington, D.C. Yeah, That's and, it. And, and- that's the inducement to cooperation. The rest of it cannot be undone because it wasn't done in the first place, with the exception of the embassy, um, which Joe Biden has has previously said he's not interested in in uh, reversing that. Everything else in the region happened entropically. Donald Trump's administration merely recognized the facts on the ground. There is a there is a recalcitrant rump within the Democratic Party progressive rump, which is wildly out of step with American popular opinion, that believes that American foreign policy towards Israel should be much more aggressive and hostile, and maybe they need to be placated. But they are a very small yet vocal minority. They probably are, populate more newsrooms than they do
1: um, counties. And to give a sense of the kind of uh, things that Palestinian leadership um, uh, offers that um, American foreign policy liberals praise as you know steps in the right direction. So, so instead of actually um, considering stopping the uh, pay-to-slay uh, funds to uh, prisoners and their family, um, what, what, the, what the Palestinians are mulling is no longer paying them on the basis of their length of their sentence because um, that uh, incentivized sort of greater horrific crimes because the longer you were put in a prison in Israel, the more money you got, Right. Um, so they're not they're not going to um, stop payments altogether. They're 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 just thinking about changing the payments they give to uh, terrorists and their families, um, no longer based on length of sentence but on the need.
0: Right. You know, it also needs to be mentioned that this implicates America in a different way, which is that there was a there was an incident, there was a, a Pansley incident involving an American, Taylor Force, who was running. Uh, who, was, who was jogging, basically, on, uh, on the beach in Tel Aviv and was murdered by a Palestinian terrorist. And uh, the Senate, I mean, the Taylor Force Act was sort of uh, advocated and passed in order to make sure that any monies spent by the U.S. government, uh, you know, that, that no, no dollar from the United States could ever be used in any way, shape, or form to subsidize the obvious murder Of americans so this is not just a you know theoretical foreign policy issue involving uh you know involving israel and the palestinians and this this conflict i mean an american was murdered i mean americans have been murdered over the course of the you know the last 50 60 years of palestinian violence against against israel you know in in various terrorist attacks this was a particularly brazen uh assault Um, And uh, and so anyway, uh, it it needed to be mentioned because uh, what is being recognized on these Zoom calls is the political calamity that would attach to Biden or the Democratic Party if they were to somehow thaw relations or let money flow or do something for the Palestinians without addressing pay and slay and Taylor force like that is just handing Republicans a you know like pitching a slow pitch lob softball to Republicans to slam across the fence and use everywhere against Biden and that that is the kind of foreign policy issue that that cuts because it involves an American. remember America's the, this country's attitude toward uh, involvement in Iraq and in the Middle East, and and the war against ISIS flipped entirely from sixty thirty five against to sixty thirty five four as a result of the horrible murders of two Americans, just two, by ISIS, or was it three? Two or three? Anyway, it wasn't hundreds, it wasn't thousands. It was two or three Americans, and that's all it took for the entire country to change its mind about whether or not we needed to go and wipe ISIS out. And Taylor Force is not that well known. It happened around the same time. It was a different kind of thing. But could you revive the Taylor Force issue against Biden? You sure could. So that will be uh, interesting to watch. So, with that, I think we will bid you adieu until tomorrow. <laughs> um, remember to go to CommentaryMagazine.com and read the December issue. Another thing you might want to look at, Terry Teachout's beautiful piece on Cole Porter. Uh, the, the the fascinating case of the greatest non-Jewish Broadway songwriter that there ever was. And pretty much the only, the only one from the Golden Age. Anyway, so, uh, for Noah... Abe and Christine. I'm John Hortz, Keep the candle burning.